we're not replacing animals from one day to the next. It's not going to happen. Our technology cannot completely replace, but it's a step process. And when you have 99% failure, if our technology brings 5% hope, it's already much better than what's in the market. Welcome to SheEO.World, a podcast about redesigning the world. I'm your host, Vicki Saunders. In each episode, you'll hear from SheEO Venture founders, women who are working on the world's to-do list. These innovative business leaders are solving some of the major challenges of our times. Sit back and prepare to be inspired. My name is Margaret McDesian. I'm the CEO and founder of Ananda Devices. I'm a biochemist and a pharmacologist, and I've spent most of my life trying to accelerate drug development. And like three years ago, I launched a startup company, and our goal is to produce human organs on a chip. So we produce mini brains, mini spinal cord, and innervated tissue to accelerate drug testing and reduce toxicity of most of the compounds in the market today. Okay, so I have a million questions about that. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Margaret, for joining us. What do you mean human organs on a chip? Like, What does that actually enable us to do? And tell me how you got to that space. Yeah, so I was always intrigued. Why couldn't we launch medication faster in the market for there are so many patients at the hospital, especially patients with neurological diseases? And when we say neurological diseases, this is really broad. We can talk about autism, Parkinson, Alzheimer's, but also chronic pain such as migraine or back pain. You know, we do not have any medication that efficiently attack the diseases in our nervous system in general. So I've dedicated a lot of of my life or a lot of my career in studying the nervous system. And I realized the major problem is that every drug is tested in animals. But animals usually do not have the same diseases as humans. Animals do not have autism, do not have multiple sclerosis, do not have Parkinson. So we test a medication for a disease in a model that does not exist. The best approach would be to test in humans, but we cannot do that. So we develop a new way of growing human nervous system, mini brains, mini organoids on a chip so that people can test their new medication directly on patients' derived cells. So let me just ask the obvious question from an outsider who knows nothing about this space. So why do we continue to test our medications and our potential you know, breakthrough discoveries on animals when it's not working? Yeah. So it's not everything that is not working. Like for cancer research, animals have cancer as well. So about 40% of the drugs we test in animals reproduce the same results in humans. And that's why cancer has advanced so much. And today there's cure for multiple types of cancer. However, for neurological diseases, the failure rate is almost 99%. We have cured Alzheimer's in, in animals 500 times, but never in humans. Still, you know, we cannot launch a drug in the market without testing in some living organism. We have to test in something, otherwise it could be very damaging. There's this famous case of the thalidomide, which was an antidepressant in the 70s, and they launched in the market, and then a lot of babies were born without arms and legs. It seemed that it was not toxic at the beginning, and since then, all the regulatory agencies have imposed a lot of testing in animals before launching anything to the market. Wow. Obviously, as you said before, to try and actually, you can't biopsy the brain or the spinal cord. 
how did you come up with this idea to do that? How did that become a possibility to put them on a chip to be able to test? Yes, one another factor that really hinder advances in neurological diseases is that we cannot take a biopsy from the brain and, and put under the microscope. While everyone is willing to give a biopsy of their tumors and we can put in a microscope, we can add drugs and we can see how it's working, about the brain, the spinal cord, no one wants to cut a piece. It's uh, completely damaging. The recent advances in stem cell technologies have shown that we can today take blood from a patient, we add a cocktail of drugs, and we transform the blood into nerve cells. Wow. And then we put them on a plate and we grow sort of a flat brain. But this is not the same organization as our natural brain, and it doesn't respond properly. So that's where another devices come in. Our company, basically, we produce some micromodes, some scaffolds made of medical silicone, and then we take the cells from the patients and, they, it, and we transform them in 3D structures. And really, they really look like mini brains. They're about half a centimeter in size. Wow. And is this something that can scale out and so that everybody could move from t testing on animals to testing in your structures? Yes. The, even to scale up, the technology was a challenge. Like We worked with the Canadian National Research Council for about two years, scaling up to make sure that we could produce as many scaffolds, as many micro silicon devices so that everyone could use. We have a partnership with the Montreal Neurological Hospital, and then we can use directly patient-derived cells, and the patients are willing and they know what we're doing and they are very happy to help in the development of new medications for their diseases. Right there, you sort of touched on another thing, I, which I imagine sort of privacy uh, of people's DNA, of their cells uh, in the medical system. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works right now and what you'd like to see? The market today is a lot about selling patients' data. A lot of people with as we heard from Facebook, or you know, it's the most common case. But any gadget we have, our cell phones, everything is recording, and the Fitbits, and you know, all this data, and we never know where it's going. Even people that participate sometimes in clinical trials, they say, you know, I gave blood to a lot of clinical trials, and I never heard back what happened. The good thing about the neurological hospital is an open science platform, so the patients are informed from the beginning to the end what's happening. And everything we discover with their, all information we gather with their cells is open to the patients and to the public in general. Which is a whole new way of thinking about privacy and data, right? When you're in an open platform and it gets used across and then are you then giving your permission for it to be used in a certain way and therefore not in other ways? Or how does that work? Yeah, that's uh, completely open science. So everything's open to the public. Apart from the we patent our plates, the scaffolds we develop, that's patent, that's our property, and that's what we sell. But all the data people acquire with it and everything that comes from the patient and goes back to the patient is open to the public. And the patients have completely access to it. It's very different from other models and from other companies that are hiding the data or selling the data. We heard about this company, I think it was 23andMe, uh, everyone paid to get their DNA sequenced and they just sold all the DNA to these people to GlaxoSmithKline, a pharmaceutical company. So nobody knows where their data is, what they're doing with it. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We, we are very transparent and our goal is really to work with the patients to get the best results for the patients. 
So as we're testing drugs in the world today to see you know, how to get them to market and we have a very strong regulatory structure, how does that actually work versus what you're trying to do? What in the process that you're creating, right now we're using animals. And so how many animals get used in a year and what does that actually look like? Tell us a little bit about the system so we can understand how you're shifting it. Yeah, we're, we're talking about a lot about drug development, but anything that comes in contact with humans, it could be uh, medication, cosmetics, could also be pesticides or any chemical that comes in contact with our skin or with our body has to be tested first in animals for toxicity. And there are regulatory agencies make sure, making sure that nothing toxic comes to the market. And the use of animals today is about 100 million. It's estimated in 100 million animals to test the toxicity of everything that we, all the new products that comes to market. Is that each year? Each year, more than 100 million animals. Yes. Wow. There's a trend I've read about that, that people are trying to outlaw that? Exactly. So uh, 67 countries today have banned the use of animals for cosmetics and other applications. Uh, for pharmaceutical use, it's hard to because, and, and certain drugs that we need to develop, we, we have no option but to test in animals. But that's changing now. With our technology, there are other four companies doing organ and a chip as well, more related to heart or kidney or other organs. To the best of my knowledge, we're the only one doing nervous system. And now they are trying to change. And the regulators are imposing legislation to make sure that people reduce, refine, and replace animal testing for technologies that are more animal-friendly and, and human-friendly at the end, right? Because we'll get better more predictive results with human tissue. And this market is growing about 70% a year. Wow, that's amazing. How big of a problem are neurological diseases at this moment? Today, 20% of the world population suffers from neurological diseases. This is something that affects especially women because women live longer. This is really sad because women live longer. They are the majority of the caregivers as well. They take care of the patients. And no wonder depression, anxiety affects women really hard. Parkinson, especially Alzheimer's and multiple sclerosis in women also have a much higher incidence and we have no cure. And we don't even understand how the female brain works because over 75% of all the tests today are performed in male subjects. So any drug that is in the market was first tested in a male rat. So no wonder when, when people say, I don't know what's in your hand. They really don't. <laughs> oh my God. This whole, I mean, honestly, as I talk to each of our mentors as we're going through these podcasts and learning about the systems that they're disrupting and shifting and coming up with new solutions for, it's amazing how women are left out of a lot of, like every single aspect of society, right? But 75% of all tests, is that shifting? Have you seen, you know, like movement in that area in the last few years or not really? People were trying, and I think our technology is really what's going to change. We are disrupting this whole system. Now we're working with the, the hospital, and they have already defined several lines of patient cells. So first we take the blood from the patient, and then we have to make sure that the patient really has Parkinson. So there's a lot of genetic tests, clinical tests that we put all together. And just by doing this full trial, we have very specific cells from male and female brains. And this is amazing. So it's the first time we're growing a mini brain of a woman on a chip. And for the first time, we're going to test the drug directly on them and see what's the response. This is marvelous. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be part of this change. And we need that. 
That's just incredible. And so I would presume that with an aging population, as you know, we move older and older, so in certain markets around the world, Japan in particular, you start to think about that market with aging demographics, presumably the neurological diseases will grow and that 20% will rise. Are there predictions around that? Yes. So this is horrible to hear, but after 80 years old, about half of the population will develop Alzheimer's disease. So with the rates increase from 60 on, but after 80, 50% have Alzheimer's. The more we live, the more chances, dementia, of course. And the other scary data is that a lot of babies are born today with autism. And those rates are increasing exponentially. Like two years ago, it was one in 69 kids were born with autism. Today is one in 57. Wow. In just two years, it increased that much. We don't know really how it starts. Apparently, there are some, it's a syndrome, like there could be some genetic factors, the environment, people don't know where it's coming from. This is more than time that we start to use human data to understand what's happening. Otherwise, we are driving into an age of demented population. Wow, that's unbelievable. What are the biggest challenges you're facing getting your work out into the world so that we can solve for these diseases? And thank you very much for doing what you're doing because, oh my gosh, do we ever need it? Yeah, you know, I've worked most of my life in academia, so we're always pushing through innovation and we're always eager for new solutions. When I jumped into entrepreneurship, I said, I have to bring this to the market. Everyone has to hear about it and let's change it. But it's not that easy to change. And that's when I realized I had a disruptive technology. When you go talk to someone, to a large corporation, and they say, but we have always used animals. There's a lot of jobs involved in this. There's a whole system. There's a whole process of drug development that depends on it. And then I tell them, but you know, on the other hand, you're buying a new drug for billions of dollars, millions here, billions there, and you don't even know if it's going to work. You have to test in a better system. We have yeah. to change everything from, from the beginning. It, it's crazy, but it seems like it's easier for pharmaceutical companies to buy new drugs in the market. We listen to that every day. Companies buying another drug or is developing another drug is investing billions of dollars, but not in the basic principle, which is the, the testing. So, which is a huge challenge, right? The inertia of the way things are really slows down innovation all the time. And are you noticing in some parts of your, in the science ecosystem that are moving faster than others, or is it similar across all of the different groups? No, it was a big surprise. When I launched the technology, I expected all the pharmaceutical companies to come and immediately adopt it. But the first to come were the cosmetic companies because they are feeling the pressure from the population. You know, they have this pressure to stop using animals. And they are looking for anything. And I was surprised. I had a, a contract with L'Oreal. I was surprised by the amount of scientists and the amount of people really involved in, in changing the, the market, in moving out of animals. But it's because they have the pressure. Pharma companies do not have the same pressure on them to change. So Mostly because we don't understand what they're actually doing behind closed doors, I guess, right? It wasn't really in the 80s, Body Shop and Anita Roddick really pushing this anti-animal testing thing that kind of, or that's what I saw anyway in the, in the press. And so that bottom-up pressure from the customer really works. But it's, it must be very hard to make that happen in the pharmaceutical space, no? It is. And it doesn't mean necessarily, like we're not replacing animals from one day to the next. It's right. not going to happen. Our technology cannot completely replace. But, you know, it's a step process. And when you have 99% failure, 
And if our technology brings 5% hope, it's already much better than what's in the market. Yeah. So what do you wish was true in your day-to-day work that would make everything so much easier? What would change? Yeah, I wish it would be easier to, for people to jump into new technologies. Mm-hmm. Because when we're talking to large corporations, it's like we're talking to different... It's not even a country. Like recently they asked me, oh, what's your largest market? I said, I don't know, because... I talked to a, a large corporation in France, but then their labs are in India or in a completely different country. The contracts are with the US. These companies are countries themselves and it's very hard to move. So I believe if the decision-making would be faster, we wouldn't be here. It's interesting because I think this is, this is a challenge of globalization, right? So you bring all these companies together, they start to get bigger and bigger, but they're, it's very complex. They're across all kinds of different regulatory markets. The supply chain starts to get really crazy. And it was just so much easier when things were smaller and in local environments so that we could move faster. Ironically, right? You, just, you would think that by aggregating everything together, we could move faster, but it in fact sort of slows down decision-making. No, uh, we're negotiating contracts now with different corporations and, and most of them is whatever, you know, any increment I have to hear, oh, in the next global meeting, I'll bring this up. In the next global meeting is when they put all their headquarters together and like, oh my God, it'll take another month. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you said that you were an academic. We know that this is one of the big challenges in a lot of markets where we have academics coming up with incredible ideas and then to commercialize them is really a hard part. So what made you step out into entrepreneurship from the lab as an academic? That must have been a pretty big and kind of scary decision to to make. It was. I think it was the the scariest decision I've made, even scarier than moving to Canada. (laughs) But the issue was, as I said, my mission was always to accelerate drug development. And then when I saw the devices I was producing were being used by different labs, at the beginning, I was just running a facility at McGill and developing these devices for other researchers inside the university. And one day they sent me all the the pictures of the how my devices had helped them in their research. So then I saw they were using my devices for to accelerate research in Parkinson, in Alzheimer's, in multiple sclerosis, in cancer. And then I said, wait a minute, should I continue, you know, here in the lab just giving one device to everyone? and selling just internally, or should I go to pharma, scale this up, and really make an impact, accelerate drug development for everyone? And I thought this would be much more impactful decision. That's when I moved. I resigned from my position and I jumped. Wow, you have family. I can imagine coming home like, I think I'm gonna start a business. I mean, I know personally, uh, I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. But kind of jumping into that, you're surrounded by people who are like, are you crazy? What are you doing? What do you know about running a business? Did did you have immediate support from your family or what did it feel like? Yeah, it took really six months to to make this decision. So it was from the aha moment to really quit everything. took me like six months. Wow, that's that's smart. (laughs) But my my family was very supportive. I remember that the last day in the lab, I was so so afraid. I was like, oh my God, or maybe I'll never come back to a lab again. So, and I just called my husband and said, can you pick me up? I don't think I can take the metro now. <laughs> my husband and my two kids, they are also believers in what I do. They're also more or less in science. My daughter is now a psychologist and she's a volunteer at the hospital with demented patients. 
Wow. Has been working for four years with them. When you see the reality of people every day, you have a different perspective. Yeah. This is something that we talk about a lot, which is when you're shoulder to shoulder suffering with people that are going through this, you just have such deep insight into the challenge and it helps you to create better solutions for them as opposed to someone who's sort of outside looking for a market opportunity. You know, it's, it's just a very different motivation that drives your creation. Yeah, and someone must speak up for them. Someone must, you know, show what it is because in a world today, you know, where people are unhappy because they don't have a certain pair of shoes or unhappy because <laughs> such a silly things, yeah. we have to realize sometimes which are the real values of life, right? This is very true. Thank you very much for all you're doing in this space. Do you have an ask? This is going out around the world, uh, not just in North America. And wondering if there's something that you would like people to leave this podcast thinking about. I would like to ask everyone there so to, to make this dream happen, to, to help all the patients to accelerate drug development, we need funds. We're looking for investment now. You know, if any investors that would like to join, please send them our way. Or if you know of any pharmaceutical, cosmetic, pesticide company that want to make less toxic products and want to try animal-free solutions, please send them our way as well. Great. Well, thank you very much, Margaret, for your time. And please get back to work <laughs> so that you can help solve these for all of us. I can't believe that, you know, as we live longer and longer, that literally 50% of us will need solutions that you're helping to create right now. So thank you very much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the CEO.world podcast. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like more information about SheEO, please visit us at SheEO.world. That's S-H-E-E-O dot world.